It's a uh, special joy uh, to be able to be here with you today. And what a question. What were you doing in 1969? I was talking to someone earlier, and I recognize that um, 1969, most of you were not even born, as he said. But many days ago, we had the privilege of being able to be here. A friend of mine is with me from right now Pasadena by way of Houston, by way of Colorado Springs. Lynn Ferris is a student at Fuller Seminary. She spent a year with us in Mendenhall, working with Mendenhall Ministries, and afterwards she will be at a table on the outside with material about Mendenhall Ministries, and we trust that you will pick up some of that material and be able to read about what we are doing and not just read about it, but begin to think about how God would want you to partnership with us. I remember when I first came to campus, I was assigned a counselor, and this counselor sat down with me and said, Dolphus, we look at your records and we recognize that you have gone to high school and to junior college, but you have not taken a foreign language. And before you graduate from this institution, you have to have a foreign language. So I looked at the person and I said, you know, I've had four years of English, would that do? <laughs> and they said, no, English would not do as a foreign language. So I said, well, I've had Southern dialect all my life, would that do? And they looked at me and said, well, Dolphus, Southern dialect won't do either. You have to have a foreign language. So I said, okay, what are my choices? And they said, you can take German or French or Spanish, Hebrew or Greek. So I said, which is the easiest? And so somebody said, uh, Spanish is the easiest. So I said, fantastic, sign me up for that class. Walked into the Spanish class and, and, and after the second day of class, the teacher said, now tomorrow when we come in here, we're not going to speak any more English. And I knew I was in trouble. So the next day as we started off the class, the teacher said, now, what we're going to do is we're going to translate everybody's name into Spanish. So they looked at Rosemary and they said, now, Rosemary, we will no longer call you Rosemary, but we'll call you Rosa Maria. That was pretty easy. And they looked at Richard and said, now, Richard, now, we'll no longer call you Richard. We're going to call you Ricardo. That was pretty easy. And then they got down to Dolphus. And when they got down to Dolphus, they finally wrestled with it for a few days, and the teacher came back and said, we're going to call you El Dolfo. <laughs> and then at that time, they said, the closest we can come to this word weary is tired. So they called me something like El Dolfo Cansado. So today, you have your speaking Dolphus tired. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was speaking at Trinity College in Deerfield, Illinois and had an opportunity to be there and share and then went over to Wheaton College and spoke at Wheaton College and I just ask you to to pray for me today as we have this opportunity to share with you partly because some of the things that that God has laid on my heart to share it may be a little hard and a little bit more difficult if it is that's all right <laughs> if, it, if, it, if it comes across a little tough, that's okay. Because I believe that, that unless we hear, how can we move ahead and do those things 
that God would want us to do. If I were to pull a subject out of the air or pull it off this paper, whichever one you want to choose, I would probably take a subject of, of, of how do you feel, how did you feel, how do you feel, when you talk about oppressed people in our society. I mean, how do you feel when somebody talks to you about poor people and oppressed people? How do you feel? How do you feel when people talk about inner cities and the problems of inner cities? How do you feel? Do, do you feel like that, that, that that's somebody else's responsibility, but it's not mine? Let somebody else do it, but don't ask me, Lord. And we come back to God and we say, God, you know, I go anywhere you want me to go, but I'll do anything you want me to do, but. And we have these little closets of, of, of where we won't go and, and what we de won't deal with. And so my question I'm asking myself and I'm asking you and other people have asked it in history is how do you feel? In Isaiah chapter 58, verses 5 through 11, please allow me to read it in the Living Bible. Is this what I want? This doing of penance and bowing like reeds in the wind and putting on sackcloth and covering yourselves with ashes, is this what you call fasting? The verse number six. No, the kind of fast I want is that you stop oppressing those who work for you and treat them fairly and give them what they earn. Verse 7. I want you to share your food with the hungry and bring right into your own homes those who are helpless, poor, and destitute. Clothe those who are cold and don't hide from the relatives who need your help. Verse 8. If you do these things, God will shed his own glorious light upon you and he will heal you. He will somehow or another deal with your godliness and he will lead you forward and your goodness will be a shield before you and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Verse 9. Then you will call and the Lord will answer, yes, I'm here. He will quickly reply, all you need to do is stop oppressing the weak and stop making false accusations and spreading vicious rumors. Verse 10. Feed the hungry, help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness, and the darkness around you shall be as bright as day. It will be as bright as day. Verse 11, and, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy you with all good things and, and keep you healthy too. And you will be like a well-watered garden, like an ever-flowing spring. So ends the reading of Isaiah chapter 58, verses 5 through 11. And then Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 22, 16, and I'll just refer to that, he saw to it that justice and help were given to the poor and the needy, and all went well for him. This is how a man lives close to God. Josiah was talking about here, about how he reached out and how he loved those who were helpless, how he loved those who were poor, how he dared to reach out, and so... I read those verses as a background because I want to ask the question again, how do you feel? I wondered how the disciples felt and, and when the disciples 
When Jesus came along and he said to the disciples and he looked at Peter and he said, Peter, drop what you're doing. And he looked at Andrew and said, stop what you're doing. He looked at John and he looked at Matthew and he looked at those potential leaders and he said, drop what you're doing. And, and what I want you to do is I want you to follow me. Leave the nets alone that you're fishing with. Leave your boat here. What I want you to do is I, I want you to follow me. And then all of a sudden in Matthew chapter 8 verse 20, he makes a proclamation. He says, when you follow me, this is something you must understand. You must understand that foxes have holes, the bird of the nest have, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath no place to lay his head. I wonder how did they feel? I wonder how they felt when all of a sudden Jesus said, leave everything you have and, and, and drop it down and, and, and don't pick it up again and, and come on and follow me because I want to take you on an adventurous journey. I want to lead you to an adventurous journey. But, but somehow or another, the Son of Man hath no place to, to lay his head. I remember God said to Abram, said, Abram, I want you to leave the heir of the Chaldees. And I want, to, I want you to leave your, 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 your comfortability. Because you see, in the Arab of the Chaldees, Abram was a big man in town. In the Arab of Chaldees, you know, somehow or another, Abram had all of his, his, his good systems around him. He had all the people around him to encourage him. He had all the people around him that he could share with. He had a comfortable life in the Arab of Chaldees. And then God came along. You see, if God would have left him alone, Abram would have been happy doing his thing in the era of Chaldees, but, but God came along. And this is what God said. God said, Abram, I want you to leave this place that you know about. And guess what? I want to take you to a place that I'll tell you about later. And some of us want to come to God and say, God, if you can guarantee what it'll look like over here, if you can give me, if you can put me in your place for just a few minutes and let me see what the end product is like, then, Lord, I'll go. If you can guarantee me success, if you can guarantee me a comfortable lifestyle, if you can guarantee me that I can live in the same kind of house and have the same kind of clothes and drive the same kind of car, if you can guarantee that to me, Lord, then, then I'll go. But let me tell you something, believers. If you plan on going into the inner city, you will not find some of those things. If you plan on going to the poverty communities in this country, you will not find those kind of things. But who will choose to go? Because how do you feel? Because I want to protect myself first. And I want to make sure that things are going well for me first. In the story in Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan, I just want to point out something about the priests. And the Levite. Because generally speaking, we look at the priest and the Levite, and, and you know, the first time I read this passage of scripture, I said, you know something? I started criticizing the priest and the Levite. But but you know something, believers, I don't criticize the priest and the Levites anymore because I understand that the priest and the Levites are no different than you and I. They just ask the wrong question. The question the priest asked was, what is going to happen to me if I stop? The Levite came along and he asked the same question. What is going to happen to me if I stop? We have somehow or another had it drilled into our minds, into our conscience, into our lifestyle, that self-preservation is the best way to go. 
And so we come to situations and we say, what is going to happen to me if I stop? But you know something? I'm so glad for the Samaritan. Samaritan came along and he dared to ask a different question. And the question he asked was, what's going to happen to him if I don't stop? (laughs) Occasionally, we need to start asking different questions. Occasionally, our man ought to be challenged to ask different questions. Not the questions that somehow or another feel good. Not the questions that somehow or another make me look good. Not the kind of questions that's going to guarantee me success. But the kind of questions that's going to ensure that the poor and the oppressed in our society would have an opportunity to hear the clear claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of question we need to start asking. And let me move on. Moses, in uh, Exodus chapter 3, it says in verse 1, One day as Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, now, now that's the way it reads, but l- let me give you Dolphus' weary version, okay? It says, now, now professors, don't y'all get upset, please. Don't y'all get upset. Just because I'm giving Dolphus' weary version here, don't get upset. It says, now Moses was minding his own business, taking care of his future inheritance. Let me read it again. Y'all missed it. Y'all missed it. Now Moses was minding his own business, taking care of his future inheritance. You have to understand that Moses was a fugitive before he found Jethro. We have to remember that Moses married into Jethro's family. And now all of a sudden he had his plan of life all out in front of him. He said, what I have to do is to be a faithful shepherd. And if I be a faithful shepherd... One day my chance will come. And so all of a sudden Moses was out there being busy, taking care of the sheep, making sure he did a wonderful job taking care of the sheep. He was minding his own business. He had his economic strategy together. He had his future retirement together. He had everything going good. If God would have just left him alone. You understand? If God would have just left him alone, he had a wonderful strategy. And listen to this. He didn't need God to mess it up because he had a strategy for what he wanted to do with his life. But all of a sudden, God came along. And the Bible says that God said in verse 7, Then the Lord told him, I have seen the deep sorrow of my people in Egypt and have heard their pleas for freedom from the harsh taskmasters. And I can see Moses saying, So what? Well, why are you telling me this, Lord? I am just a shepherd tending sheep. And then all of a sudden in verse 10, he says, Now I'm going to send you to Pharaoh's to demand that he let you lead my people out of Egypt. Moses, I have a task for you to do. Drop what you're doing. Follow me. Now, Moses, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about leaving, you know, moving up the economic ladder? And and I venture to tell you, young people, that many of you are here at a Christian institution training, getting an education, because in the back of your mind, you want to move up a social economic ladder. (laughs) 
Sorry about that. Sorry about that. And we've been told that the way to do it is you major in this and, and, you, and you major in that and, and you can make so much money if you become this. But, 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 but where is God? If your plan is so perfect and your strategy is so perfect, will you ever go to Chicago and work with inner city impact? Will, will you ever do that? Will, will you literally choose? To go to Chicago and work with inner city impact. Will you choose to do that if you had a choice? Or would inner city impact appear the last on your agenda because it doesn't fit your strategy for future development? How do you feel? How did Moses feel? Moses didn't need to be bothered by this, but, but he, he listened a little bit. In verse 11, he said to God, God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh's? And God said to him, but, but I'll go with you. And that was one excuse. The next excuse was, Israel, you know, won't believe me. They won't believe me. Who should I tell them sent me? And he says, the only thing you tell them is, tell them that the I am God, God sent you. When I was here, Dr. Martin King used to always say, in that passage of Scripture, he says, I who am fully am, the I am God, is sending you. Let them know that that... that that anything that happens, I am. Before you go through the struggle and your problems, I am. And young folk, whenever you understand life, you have to understand whatever you do, you serve the I am God. That is anything you need, God is able to supply. But sometimes we can believe that in, 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 in the nice, soft spaces of society. But can we believe it in the difficult, rough trenches of society? And so he says, tell them, that the I am God sent you. And then it says, but, but what if they don't believe me? And one thing about oppressed people is that oppressed people began to relax in order to survive as a, an oppressed people. What you do is you readjust. And the more you readjust, the more you can stand the problem. I remember... In the movie Roots the Gift, Louis Gossett Jr. was talking to LeVar Burden, and LeVar Burden was explaining freedom to Louis Gossett Jr. And LeVar Burden was saying, freedom, you can do this, and, and freedom, you can do that, and, and freedom means this. And, and Louis Gossett looked at him and said, but, but I don't understand. I have been a slave all my life. I don't even understand the word freedom. And it hit me. A person who's been oppressed for so long and, and put down for so long, and you come along talking about freedom, it's going to take a long time before they can understand freedom. And he says, but, but God, I don't know if they're going to believe me when I go in there talking about freedom. They've been oppressed so long. They've been making bricks so long. They've been collecting straw so long. They've been doing it so long. I, I don't think they're going to believe me. And then God says, relax. Take your hand and put it in your bosom and, and look at the staff you have and, and you're going to have power when you go. And then he says, but I'm slow to speak. I can't talk well. And then finally Moses did like we do. He says, oh Lord, please send somebody else. 
Lord, I know you have a lot of people in your kingdom. Lord, you have a lot of people that love you. You have a lot of people that follow you. Why don't you pick one of them? Leave me alone. Go pick somebody else. But the call of missions and the call of ministry is who will dare to choose to go do something that's not popular, that's not exciting, that doesn't offer as much security, doesn't offer as much protection. It's not a nice, easy road. We want to we do like Lot. We want it to look good. And then we'll follow it. And then God says, that's okay. <laughs> go anyway. And I remember when I grew up in Mississippi, how did I feel? How did I feel growing up in poverty? How did I feel growing up in racism? And, and how did I feel growing up in injustice? And, and how did I feel trapped in a box? And everything I could think about doing was breaking free from that box. I remember by the time I got to high school, I'd already drawn a conclusion. The conclusion was that the only way that Dolphus Weary can survive is to one day go to college, get an education, get a degree, and move as far away from Mississippi as I could. That was my very simple plan of life, get away from the problem. How do you feel? Do you feel like that you want to run from your Jerusalem or your Judea? You want to get as far away from it as you can, run, get away. As I looked around me and I analyzed my life, I analyzed the situation, and I understood that black people in the South had three choices. One choice was to act happy, even when things go bad. Have you heard the song, uh, for those of you from Kentucky, don't be offended. Have you heard of the song, My Old Kentucky Home? <laughs> for those who are from the South, when you hear My Old Kentucky Home, there's a sense of nostalgia. The darkies are playing around the tree. They are merrily playing around my old Kentucky home. But for those who are oppressed, my old Kentucky home is a, is a symbol of oppression. And we have to understand that. So people acted happy. They looked happy. They sounded happy. Those were the choices of survival. The second choice was to rebel. Rebellion was as simple as looking somebody in the eye and talking to them. You had, if you looked somebody in the face and talked to them, that was called rebellion. If you called somebody by their first name, that was called rebellion. If you said yes to somebody, that was called rebellion. And if you rebelled, you were either beaten or lynched or you were run out of town. My choice was to leave. My choice was to one day Leave the state of Mississippi because I felt like there was nothing could happen to me good in the state of Mississippi. But you know, the good news is God, God came. And I became a Christian through the ministry in Mendenhall, Mississippi. But you know, one of my disappointments is that once I became a Christian, God didn't take away from me my desire to leave. I still wanted to break free. I still wanted to leave. I felt like that I still had to get out of Mississippi So I wanted to leave still. Then all of a sudden went to, when I graduated from high school 
God had put inside of me a desire to go to a Christian college. And, and I heard about schools like the one here, and I, I heard about schools like Cedarville, and I heard about schools like Wheaton, and I heard about schools across the country. But when I applied to school way back in ancient days in 1965, those schools were not open to accepting black students. Shock. I ended up going to a private junior college in Mississippi. And while I was going to school at this junior college in Mississippi, God sent a team of people down to Mendenhall, Mississippi. On that team was David Nicholas, who was the director of admissions here. And on that team was John MacArthur, Jr. He came down to Mississippi. He came to the junior college I was going to. They found out I was a Christian. And plus, they found out I played basketball, and that didn't hurt. <laughs> and they began to talk to me about the possibility of coming out here to California to go to school. A friend of mine was going to another junior college, Jimmy Walker. We, we got together and said, if you go, I'll go. If you go, I'll go. And we came out here together. And we discovered when we got on campus that we were the first two black students ever to come to this school and live on campus. Culture shock. How do you feel? And when I was speaking to the students at Trinity College, I asked them a basic question. And I asked the basic question of you, have you ever been a minority in your life in a situation? Then if you've never been a minority in a situation, you will never know how a minority feels. I remember one time we went back to play a game in the Midwest. And, and one night we didn't have a game. It was like five blacks on the team. And it was like eight whites. And we didn't have a game. And we decided in, in Ohio there to go and watch Central State play. We walked into the gymnasium, 5,000 people packed in the gymnasium at Central State, and the only white thing in there were the stripes on the jerseys of the referees on the floor. <laughs> and all of the white guys on the team started getting closer to us. And they started asking questions like, if they get us, whose side are you going to be on? I said, I don't know you. <laughs> in the process of that, you know, we, we sort of moved together and we molded together because they had to, for the first time in their life, they had to deal with every single stereotype that went through their mind. Because for the first time in their lives, they were a minority. And at the end of that game, many of them came to us and said, you know something, Dolphus? You know something, Jimmy? We understand and we empathize with you. We understand what it feels like to be a minority came here on campus and God blessed in so many ways. Had a wonderful time here and a wonderful experience. But I still didn't have a call to go back to Mendenhall, Mississippi. And I was playing basketball in Taiwan with a Christian basketball team called Overseas Crusade when the coach of the team challenged me about full-time Christian service overseas. And after spending time talking and praying, I said, you know something, Norm? God is saying to me, Dolphus, what are you doing 10,000 miles away from home? And there are people in rural Mississippi that's trapped. They're trapped in religion. They're trapped in poverty. They're trapped in injustice. And God laid it on my heart to go back down to Mendenhall, Mississippi, and begin to work in that community. God began to challenge my heart to go back. Came back out here and graduated from the seminary in 1971. And when I graduated from the seminary, John Perkins, who who started the ministry in Mendenhall, Mississippi, he said something to me after I graduated. He said, Dolphus, we are now ready for you to come back to Mendenhall, Mississippi, but you have to go and raise your own support. How did I feel? Let me open up a little door for you. 
All my life growing up in rural Mississippi and all my life as a black male, everything I've ever heard is all of the garbage stereotypes. The stereotypes that say that black folk are dumb and ignorant. Stereotypes that say that black folk can't learn. Stereotypes that say black folk are athletes. Stereotypes that say all black folk can sing. Y'all ought to hear me sing. you will be in trouble. But the stereotype that hit me most is that black people are always sitting around waiting for somebody to give them something. And all my life I built inside of me a desire to break free from that stereotype. And the reason I wanted to go to a college like this was because I wanted to major in something that I can go back home with a degree in my hand and say I want to earn my way. I wanted to break free from the stereotype. I wanted to break free from the stereotype of somebody depending on somebody to take care of my needs. I hated that stereotype. I wanted to break free from that stereotype. And you will not understand what I'm saying if you don't understand what it means to always be faced with stereotypes in life. Twenty-some years later, I can say this one to you. Professor Dress won't remember it. <laughs> we were sitting in a, an American history class. And all of a sudden in that American history class, Professor Dress said, now we've been going for so long and what we're going to do is those of you who are in the top 10% or 5%, I'm going to call your names. You do not have to take the final examination. And all of a sudden, people were talking, and they were going through all kind of little changes. They, he called Mary's name, and she got up and walked out. He called other people's name, and they got up and walked out. And he called Dolphus Weary's name, and a, you could hear a pin fall. Because people had to deal with the stereotype. They had to deal with the reality that black folk do have some capability. And sometimes when we box people into stereotypes, we can do anything we want to with them as long as we box them into stereotypes. The good news is that God did give me the strength to go out and raise some support to go back to Mendenhall, Mississippi, and I'm glad I did. Because I went back chasing a dream. And the dream I went back chasing was, is the gospel of Jesus Christ powerful enough to change the condition of poor people? We understand that the gospel changes us from the inside out. We understand that the gospel transforms our lives. But is the gospel powerful enough to change poor people and poor conditions? And that's the dream we chase. Because so often what we want to do is we want to tell poor people, give your life to Jesus Christ, and one day when you get to heaven, it's going to be okay. We want to tell people, one day life is going to be better. But what about now? So we went a person to Christ, and we sent them back into the rat-infested apartment house to sleep. We tell people about Jesus Christ, and they have no availability of health care in their community. We tell people about Jesus Christ, and they still cannot read and still do not have skills. And we began to say, but Lord, is your gospel strong enough to change people from the inside, but also is it strong enough to have an impact on people's lives so that they themselves begin to move to get skills and to do some things to help create a new sense of life for themselves. And the words that hit my mouth and hit my mind were, can it be done? Words like impossible, words like too few have done it before. Show me an example for where it's worked. I, I couldn't find an example for where it worked. And at the same time, the church was saying, 
Let's don't get involved in social ministries in this country. At the same time, we were building hospitals and clinics in Africa and Asia and India and Latin America, but we couldn't do it here. And we began to test the waters, and going out testing the waters, we felt a sense of fear. And in that sense of fear, we read the passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 32, the healing of the boy with an evil spirit. And Jesus said, if you believe, everything is possible for him who believes. And we went back saying, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Because I haven't seen it before, it doesn't mean that you can't do it. Because I don't have any models to go to, it doesn't mean you can't do it. And God led us back. And my wife, Rosie, we went back to Mendenhall, Mississippi in 1971. And since 1971, God has raised up a recreation ministry in our community. He's raised up a Christian health clinic. He has a Christian school, a Christian community law office, a farm, a thrift store, an adult education ministry, a radio ministry. We are ministering to black pastors who graduate, who never graduated from high school, who never went to seminary. They are preaching in churches and they're doing the best job they can. And we've been trying to train these men on how to do evangelism and discipleship in the church. And and God has blessed us to do that. And not only that, God has enabled us to serve on some boards around the country where other communities are saying, we want to learn from you. I serve on the board of a group in Chicago called the Londale Community Church. So as you drive down Ogden Avenue in Chicago, there's an oasis of hope in that community. Because in that community there's a health clinic. In that community there's a church that's vibrant with God's word being preached every Sunday. In that community they'll burn up some of those old houses. And in that community there's a recreation center. And in that community there's an oasis of hope. None of these oases are created by people who do not have vision. And we have to begin to say, well, how do I feel? It's not just a feeling of feeling sad and emotional, but it's a feeling of what am I going to do? And Lord, how are you going to use me to do it? I serve on the board of a group in West Dallas called Voice of Hope. And last week, over 200 ministries met in Chicago because we were forming a coalition and association of ministries just like ours that are attacking the problem that poor people are entrapped with in this country. Some of our experiences gives me an opportunity that is captured in this book. Y'all know I was going to do this. It's captured in this book. It's entitled, I Ain't Coming Back. And that's what I said to God when I got ready to leave Mississippi. I am not going back. And let me be very candid with you for a few minutes. The reason that I can stand with confidence and say that you need this book, there are four of them. Now, none of them are because I wrote it. Now, please, please, no, I don't have no illusions. I don't have any false, crazy illusions because I wrote the book. But there are four reasons why you need the book. One of them is, it's the struggle of any person who grows up in any kind of community that's, that's really bad, the struggle is to always leave. Whether it's your Jerusalem or whether it's your Samaria, the struggle is always to leave. Some of you said when you grew up in some little small town in Iowa, you would never go back. And so it's, it's a struggle there. It's a, it's a good, good book in terms of that. The second reason 
is that it deals with racism. And that's one of those words that nobody want to say. Because as Christians, we don't supposed to be racist. Y'all know that? As Christians, we just supposed to love everybody. Don't y'all know that? As Christians, we suppose, you know how we talk? We suppose, and we're always talking about we suppose to love everybody. When do we stop supposing? It's like people telling God, God, as soon as I make enough money, I'll give more. Whoever determines what's enough. We keep moving the standard. It's, it deals with racism, but it also deals with reconciliation. Praise God for reconciliation. We do not have to live our lives in the past. Praise God for reconciliation. The third reason you need it is because we are planning on taking this book and establishing a Genesis 1 school. That's our school in Mississippi. We are establishing a scholarship fund as we move and sell the book. We are taking the proceeds to establish a scholarship fund. Let me tell you the last reason you need it. The last reason you need it, and please, please allow me to say this. I'm going to assume again that I'm at home, and at home you can say stuff you can't say no other place. Every white Christian need to have books in your library by black Christian authors. Let me say it again. Let me say it again. I graduated from school in 1971, and the way you measure seminary students and seminary graduates is how many books you got in your library. That's the way you measure the seminary students is how many books I got in my library. When I graduated from here, when I graduated from L.A. Baptist College, and when I graduated from L.A. Baptist Theological Seminary, I had about 200 volumes of books in my library, and I did not have a single book by a Christian black author. That's not the bad news. Let me give you the bad news. The bad news is it didn't bother me. It didn't bother me at all. Because I had been conditioned to believe, not by anybody telling me, but simply because when I looked around me in my environment, I didn't see any. Nobody pointed them out to me. I had been conditioned to believe that either black folk did not have enough intelligence to write books, or they were not educationally and theologically competent to write books. And so I wiped them out. And believers, as we move more and more into a multicultural society, please hear me, please hear me. As we move more and more into a multicultural society, we cannot afford the luxury of isolating large segments of our society and say, I don't want that, I don't need that. Every Christian needs to have books on their shelf in their library, library by authors who are different than they are. Because there's a perspective that you get when you read something from somebody's culture. And you might not like that, you might not hear me, don't buy this book, but you ought to buy one. And that's the message. How do you feel? How do you feel when you hear me say that? Believers, you can partner with us. As we work in ministry, you can partner with us in several ways. You can pray for us. And oh, we need people praying. Oh, we need people praying for us. Please pray for us. You can volunteer, and volunteerism is important. Choose to go somewhere where other people won't go. You can volunteer. Thirdly, you can do short-term missionary services. Lynn Ferris just spent a year down in Mendenhall working with us 
take a year and go somewhere and do mission work and spend the time there learning and working and growing. Teachers and office workers and skilled people in different areas, there are opportunities for that to happen. Because we struggle. We struggle with identifying Christians who will somehow or another not just feel an empathy toward poor people, but who will say, Lord, I want to put people on my agenda that I ordinarily wouldn't put on my agenda. We need people who are willing to say if there's a choice between going to rural Mississippi and Colorado Springs, they were, some people would choose rural Mississippi. That if there's a choice between going in the inner city L.A. and going somewhere to Hawaii to ministry, some people would choose inner city L.A. <laughs> How do you feel? And there are times in ministry where I feel like it's not worth it, Lord. Someone asked me once, Adolphus, you know, uh, do you ever feel like that you made a mistake and you made the wrong decision? I said, every week. Every week. I ask myself over and over again, Lord, why did I choose to come and be where I am? But you know, there's a verse of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. It says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And look what it says in the next one. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, your toil is not in vain. Speaking of the church the other week, and I heard a song that's very applicable to me in a struggle. The song says, Wounded Soldier. I am a wounded soldier, but I will not leave the fight. The cost of great physician is healing me. So I'm standing in the battle, in the armor of his, might, of his light, because his mighty power is real in me. I'm loved, I'm accepted by the Savior of my soul. I'm loved, I'm accepted, my wounds will be made whole. I am a wounded soldier, but I will not leave the fight. Because the great physician is healing me. How do you feel about the poor? How do you feel about the press? oppressed? How do you feel about people who are different than you? Guess what? You can't run away from them. I don't care how many suburbs you create. You can't run away. I don't care how many in Mississippi we had somebody created this community. Let me tell you what they call it. Now, please hear me. They call it... Uh, Plantation Shores, a sensibly restricted community. I want you to hear me. In other words, they meant no black folk allowed. You can't create isolated little worlds to live in because we are growing up and living in a multicultural society. How do you feel about it needs to be dealt with because that way God can use you in ministry. Let's bow together.